Well, good morning, Element. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here and excited that you're here to celebrate with us as we prepare for Easter. Now, Easter's next week, but all around the world, churches, Christians, everywhere are going to be celebrating something together that we often call Palm Sunday. And we are going to do the same. We're going to talk about it, uh, talk about the significance of that moment in Jesus's life as he enters into the city of Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. But before we actually dive in to the events that take place in Jesus's life, that one week before Easter uh, that we call Palm Sunday, I actually want to back up in time just a little bit. Actually, that's not true. I want to back up in time a lot a bit. I don't think that's really a phrase, but I think it should be. So we're actually going to back up a, a little over a thousand years, and we are going to uh, actually pick up where we left off last week. And if you want to follow along with us, the Bible app or scanning this QR code is the easiest way to follow along with all the scriptures that we're going to read together this morning. And while this QR code is up, I'm going to read for you Judges chapter 21, verse 25, which says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that's how we ended the series on Judges that we just finished up last week. You see, at this point in history, the Israelites had recognized what it was like to have a flawed human being as their leader. And throughout the period of the Judges, these individuals, these judges or deliverers, they did some good things, but there were a lot of flaws about them. They came, came in as military leaders to free the Israelite people from the oppression and the difficulties they were facing from the outside. But what Israel realized is that they needed a new kind of leader. They needed someone who would come and lead them into everlasting peace. They needed someone who could lead them into genuine and true Freedom. They needed someone who could lead and rule and reign and could bring eternal comfort and satisfaction and joy. They needed a new kind of leader. Now, while the Israelites correctly determined that their current system of leadership was broken and flawed, that judges, having judges or deliverers lead them was not the ultimate solution. They made an incorrect uh, determination that what they needed instead of a judge was a king. And so you can look with me, and this will be on the screen, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So historically, we've gone from uh, a little over a thousand, about 1,200 years before Jesus to we've bumped it up just a little bit. And we're about a thousand years before Jesus. And what's taking place in first Samuel is that the people have decided they don't want to judge. They want a king. And so they go to this guy named Samuel. Samuel was actually the last judge to lead and rule Israel. We didn't actually read about him in the book of Judges because unlike all the rest of their judges and deliverers, Samuel was a pretty decent guy. He was actually a pretty good leader. And what made Samuel different than all the other leaders and judges is that rather than being a military leader, he was a spiritual leader. And so the elders of Israel, that's, you could just think of their sort of their national leaders, 
So these national leaders, then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old. That's a great way to start uh, your plea to him. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. His sons did not lead in a spiritually um, wholesome, they were not, they weren't full of integrity. Um, and so they recognize we don't want your sons to lead us when you die. So now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God had used these flawed judges of the past to bring physical delivery uh, for the Israelites through military means. But God had called his people to look to him to be their true leader. But just as in the past they had abandoned the worship of God, they have now abandoned the rule of God. Now the Israelites no longer want to worship God as God as he's revealed himself to be. Now they also don't want to trust him and follow him. So God tells Samuel, you need to give a warning to the people. And so Samuel delivers that warning to the people. And he says, you don't really want a king because you don't even know what it means to have a king. Because if we have a king, he's going to take many of your children. He's going to make them serve in his army and fight his battles. They're going to have to serve in his palace and do all the things he wants them to do. Oh, and by the way, if you have a king, he's going to take some of your fields some of your crops, some of your animals, some of your income. Effectively, you're going to have to start paying taxes to fund his palace and the things that he wants to do and his, his wars that he wants to fight. Trust me, you don't really want a king. Can you imagine, can you guess what happens next? Probably. They basically stomp their feet have a little pouting fit and say, no, we want a king. So Samuel says, fine. And what happened? Well, Israel got their king and it turned out they got what they wanted. And once they had it, they weren't quite as excited about it anymore. Sounded great on paper, but in reality, life wasn't perfect. But if we've learned anything about who God is, from the entire story of scripture, what we have learned is that God is faithful. That even when we mess up, even when we abandon worshiping him, even when we abandon following him and trusting him, that he is faithful. See, we're a lot like the Israelites. We can look around our lives, we can look around our communities, we can look around our world, and we can identify some pretty big problems. But we, like the Israelites, also think we can be the solution. But that's, 
That's exactly opposite of what the Bible teaches us is that, yes, we are the problem, which means we can't be the solution. So the Israelites knew what was wrong with their current form of leadership. They thought they had the right answer, but it turns out that they didn't. But God, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failure to follow his commandments, and in the midst of our idolatry and abandoning the worship of him, God always remains faithful. So if we fast forward in history a little bit more, we come to the time frame when Israel does have a king, and at the current time, the king's name is David. Yes, the same David as David and Goliath. David is king over Israel, and one day David wakes up, he looks around, and he goes, you know what? Something's not right. I live in this incredible palace. I have all that I want all around me. I'm protected in this secure house, and God is living in a tent. You see, at that time frame, the Israelites gathered to worship together in something called a tabernacle. It was a, just a glorified, really large canvas tent. And David was like, that's not right. I shouldn't be living in this beautiful palace and God living in a tent. So I'm going to build God a house. So David tells uh, his friend and spiritual leader, Nathan, hey, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says to him, King David, if that's what your heart wants to do, do it. But then Nathan later is praying to God and God comes to Nathan and says, no, I will not allow David to build me a house or a temple. And then he says, tell David this. And in 1 Chronicles 17, this is what Nathan was told to tell King David. It says, moreover, so this is God speaking to David. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So David says, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you something. I'm going to build something that will last forever. I'm going to build something where my presence can dwell. And so this set a whole new level of expectation for the Israelite people. They recognized the failures of their own leaders, the failures of the judges, even the failures of their kings. David in the Bible is called a man after God's own heart. But when he gets into power and sits on the throne, he gets tempted and he does some pretty terrible things. So Israel recognized the failures of their own leaders. And now they begin to set their hopes on a future king. One who would be both a son of David and a son of God. One who will sit on an eternal throne. 
and through whom we'll build a lasting dwelling place for God's presence. So the entire nation began to put their hopes in this special king, what they called the anointed one. Now, in Hebrew, their word for anointed one was Mashiach, which is what we translate Messiah. In ancient Greek, their word for this anointed one was Christos, which we translate Christ. Messiah, Christ, means the anointed one. Christ was not a last name for Jesus. It was a title. And so the whole nation began looking forward to when is this king going to come? When will this king come who will usher in God's very presence, who will sit on an eternal throne, who will be both a son of David or a descendant of David and a son of God? When will this anointed one, when will this Messiah, when will this Christ come? And now we fast forward to the first century AD. When in ancient Palestine, rumors started spreading. Maybe this anointed one has come. Have you heard? Have you heard of Jesus of Nazareth? Have you heard what he's been doing and the things that he's been saying? Maybe the anointed one, maybe this Christ, maybe this Messiah has finally arrived and hope and expectation started to build throughout the land that maybe God had finally sent this anointed one that we have been waiting hundreds of years to come. And then what we see is one week before Easter, one week before the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus enters into the capital city of Jerusalem where this anointed king would one day come. And as he walked into Jerusalem, the crowds began to gather and celebrate. Our king has arrived. And we read about that in Matthew chapter 21. It says, now when they, that's Jesus and his disciples and his followers, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is a passage of scripture that Christians around the world will all be reading in unison today. Because this took place one week before the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we are one week away from Easter, this is what we too celebrate and remember 
What I want to do is I want to look at a few key words and phrases that come from this story that will help to shed light on the significance of this moment and what it means for Jesus to truly be king. We start here at the beginning, just this idea that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, which is significant. Because for the Jewish people, or the Israelite people, Jerusalem was the center of God's activity. This is where God would come once again and where his anointed one, this future king, would come and sit on a throne. We see it throughout scripture. Psalm 48 is a great example. In Psalm 48, Jerusalem is referred to as the city of God, where his very presence can be found. It is a beacon of hope to the world and will be, quote, the city of God's great king. Then we see that as Jesus tells his disciples to go into Jerusalem, they're going to find this colt and this donkey tied up. And when the landowner or the, the owner of these animals comes out and asks why they're stealing them, they're supposed to respond, the Lord needs them. Just so you know, that doesn't work today. So if you are going to steal something, you can't just be like, ah, oh, the Lord needs it won't work. But in this instance, it did because Jesus was in control. But here's what's significant is that in this moment, Jesus, by calling himself Lord, makes it clear that he is God's chosen one. If there was any doubt among any of his followers, Jesus has cleared that doubt up because he is the coming king. And he is the manifestation and incarnation of God himself. Then we get this quote from an Old Testament prophet. Prophet who had lived, lived hundreds of years before this. Who God had used to continue this, this discussion and continue building the hope for this future king. The hope had started when God spoke to King David and said, I'm gonna, one of your sons, one of your descendants is going to sit on an eternal throne. He's not only going to be your son, he's going to be my son. And with him will usher in my very presence on this earth. But then prophets for generations to come would continue to talk about this coming king. And Zechariah was one of those prophets. This is a quote from Zechariah 9.9 when God begins to speak to his people about this coming king. Preparing them for this king. Who in this passage will bring deliverance, peace, and establish the rule of reign rule and reign of God in the world, and he will do so by riding into this holy city on a donkey in a humble manner, not on a steed or a horse, not led by chariots and soldiers, but this great king will come in humility into his great city. And it says this, that the crowds begin to lay their cloaks down on the ground so even the donkey that Jesus was riding on wouldn't touch the dirt. Now that's an unusual detail that is unfamiliar to us. But this was a symbol by the people that they were acknowledging and recognizing Jesus as their king. This actually is not the first time it's happened. As you go and you read through the Old Testament, you read stories of many of the ancient kings of Israel, this was a practice they would do. They would lay down cloaks for the king to walk on as a symbol 
They were acknowledging his rule and reign and his right to the throne. And so for the people to do this was their way of symbolically acknowledging Jesus as king. And for those who didn't lay down cloaks, they cut branches. These would have been palm branches. And this is why we call it Palm Sunday. They would have cut these palm branches. They would have been holding them up and waving them around. And many of them also began laying down these branches as Jesus was walking in. Palm branches were a symbol of nationalism and pride and victory. For the Jewish people, think of palm branches the same way bald eagles serve a symbolic function in America. Right? Bald eagles are things that we, we put on our coins and dollars and statues and to symbolize American independence and freedom. Palm branches for the Israelites also carried with it great symbolism. And we even find it on their ancient coins and in their statues. And then we see the crowd crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna literally means please save us. And it was a term that Jews used to praise God and to remind themselves of his faithfulness and the salvation that he brings. And as calling him a son of David, they were recognizing that Jesus was stepping into his rightful place as this king of an eternal throne. But this wasn't just symbolic because Jesus was a literal descendant of David, as we read in the New Testament about where his family heritage comes from. But by calling him a son of David, they were acknowledging his rightful place to take the throne. There were two primary ways in which people responded to Jesus this final week of his life. The first one we see in the crowd. Hosanna. Translates to, oh, save or please save us. But here's my question. What did they want Jesus to save them from? Why were they so excited to see a king march into Jerusalem? I mean, Israel hadn't had their own king in power for hundreds of years. Now, technically, there was sort of a pseudo-Jewish king in place. You might have heard of him and some of his family members, Herod the Great, or King Herod, his son, uh, one of his sons, um, Herod Antipas, who will actually oversee part of Jesus's trial before his crucifixion. But, but these weren't true Jewish kings because they actually worked for the Romans. They got rich off of their position working with the Romans. So what, what did the people want Jesus, this new king, to save them from? Well, think about what caused the people to originally ask for a king a thousand years before that. Well, they wanted someone who would come and fight battles for them. They wanted someone to come in and bring physical deliverance against the foreign armies who occupied their land. They wanted national glory once again. And in Jesus, they were hoping that as a king, he would come and he would overthrow the government. That he would push the Romans out of their land that he would restore them to a political 
geopolitical and military power once again, that the glory of the nation of Israel would reign supreme in all the land. They were hoping for a king to come and do what all the past kings had never quite accomplished. The Jews wanted the Romans out of their land. They wanted to rule their own land. They wanted to rule themselves and they wanted glory once again. And then there was another response to Jesus. And it was the response of the elite and the religious leaders. We'll jump down just a couple verses in Matthew 21. So after Jesus is entered into the city, we get to hear about what happens over the course of the next week. This is what's happening during that first day. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The crowds saw Jesus and they felt hope. The religious leaders saw Jesus and felt fear. Jesus was a threat to the power they had over others. Like so many leaders of the past, they used their positions of power and authority to serve themselves and oppress their own people. On the surface, Jesus represented hope to the people. Maybe this new king has finally arrived and we will be free from oppression. And the leaders looked at Jesus and felt fear. And that's why they arrested him. As you read about the week leading up to his arrest, Jesus continues to care for the hurting, to bring healing to those who need it, to provide love and encouragement to those who are, who are social outcasts, and to publicly challenge the elite and religious leaders of the day for their hypocrisy. Eventually, it led to the religious leaders coming to a conclusion. Jesus must go. So in the night, they arrest him. They hold their own secret trials in the middle of the night so that the people don't know what has happened. And then they bring him before the Roman governor, Pilate. And this is what we read. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. When the religious leaders realized they could no longer ignore Jesus, and they could no longer convince the people to stop listening to him and following him, their only option was to get rid of him. And when the people realized that Jesus was not the kind of king they wanted, 
when they couldn't force him or trick him into doing what they wanted, they no longer had use for him. When they realized that Jesus was a king, but of a different kind of kingdom, that he was not going to overthrow the Romans, that he was not interested in geopolitical power and glory. When they realized Jesus wasn't on their agenda, they no longer had use for him. And so the crowd who had once celebrated the coming of this great king within less than a week have turned. And now they stand united, yelling to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, get him out of here. And though Pilate tried to convince the leaders in the crowd otherwise, he eventually relented. And he handed Jesus over. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before them. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, scarlet or purple being the symbol of royalty. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So at the climax of this final week, Jesus is finally dressed as a king. But quite different than what most would expect. The robe he puts on is one of mockery and shame. And his crown is a crown of thorns. Designed to humiliate and to cause pain. But as it turns out, this was always the kind of king Jesus intended to be. Long before he ever entered into Jerusalem, this is what Jesus told others about himself. Son of man being his favorite self-designation, which we talked a little bit about last week. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. A king who doesn't come to be served, but to serve others. A king who doesn't sit as commander-in-chief, demanding that others lay down their life, but as one who comes to lay down his own life, to give his life as a ransom, to pay the price to free his people. That Jesus did, in fact, come as a king who would bring freedom, but not freedom from a foreign army, a different kind of freedom. This is how the New Testament would later reflect on the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath 
of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus came to be the kind of king, to be the kind of judge, to be the kind of deliverer we actually needed. He came to defeat the enemy, but not an enemy we could see with our eyes. The great danger we faced was being enslaved, not by a foreign nation, but enslaved by sin. The threat we faced was not being separated from a piece of land we could call home. The great threat we faced was being separated from our God and creator. Jesus came to be the kind of king, the kind of savior, the kind of deliverer we always needed. And he makes an invitation for all of us to make him king. Romans 10, 9 and 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if he is Lord, if he is king in your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And Jesus, the true son of David and the son of God has arrived. He came to usher in God's kingdom, to set the captives free, to sit on an eternal throne. God promised that his anointed one, his Christ, would be the one to build a house, a place where God would dwell with his people. Jesus is that house The Gospel of John opens with this beautiful poetic imagery in examining who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Word who was with God and who is God. And in John 1.14 it says, And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you were to translate it literally, it says, And he tabernacled among us. Just as the tabernacle was that physical location people could come to meet with God, where he dwelled with his people. So in Jesus, that is where God dwells now. that, That God's presence did return, and it returned not in a building, but in a person. And here, Jesus invites all of us to make him king by calling him Lord. What the Old Testament taught us is that the people needed a king. But what's revealed in Jesus and in the New Testament is that it was a different kind of king. And so as we celebrate Palm Sunday, all around the world, churches and Christians reflecting on this passage and this moment in history 2,000 years ago. We celebrate and we remember when God's great anointed king enters into Jerusalem, this great holy city, to be crowned and enthroned. But it was going to be a different kind of crown that he would wear. And it would be an eternal throne that looks a little different than what others are accustomed to. 
But the invitation goes out now. Because Jesus is still king. The question is, is he, is he king in your life? Have you allowed him to sit on the throne of your heart and your life? To rule and to reign and to be your savior and your deliverer. And that is the invitation for you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this moment that you've given us. Lord, would you just take this quiet moment? Would you remove distractions? Whatever it may be. Maybe we have plans later this afternoon. Maybe we have a big week coming up or maybe we're just coming out of a stressful week. Would you, would you clear any distractions and let us just focus in this moment and wrestle with the question, are you king? Are you king of our lives? I want you to keep your eyes closed, if you will, for just a few moments. And I'd love to encourage you to wrestle with this question. Have you made Jesus king of your life? Have you called him Lord? And if you haven't, then this is that moment for you. Just as we read out of Romans 10, that if you will believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, because while he came to die for us, sin and death in the grave could not hold him down because Jesus was a different kind of king. Yes, he was a son of David, but he was also a son of God. And God vindicated his death and his life by raising him from the dead. And if you will believe that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that then you get to be a part of this new kingdom, a kingdom where God rules and reigns, a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom which God has promised that once again his anointed one will return and finish what he started. So if you haven't, will you make him king of your life right now? There's no magic words. There's no special hoops to jump, jump through. You just share your heart in prayer. We're leading into a response time, a time for us to respond we could respond in joy and thankfulness for Jesus giving his life. We can respond in prayer and humility. And at the back of the room today is a table. And on that table are, is bread and the cup. Because as we're going to talk about on Friday night at our Seder dinner, Jesus, on the night before he was arrested and crucified, while sharing a final supper with his disciples, took some bread and broke it. And he said, this now represents my body, which is broken for you. 
And he took a cup and he says, this now represents my blood that's going to be poured out for you. And for 2000 years, Christians have celebrated the significance of Jesus giving his life for us by taking the bread and taking the cup in remembrance. And if you would like to make that a part of your worship response this morning, then the table is open for you. At any point in time that you'd like to go back there, you can, and you can take the bread and you can dip it in the cup and you can remember what he did for you. But however the Lord leads you, you respond. Lord, thank you for moving in this place. Jesus, we thank you for being not the kind of king we expected, not the kind of king we demanded, but the kind of king we needed. Thank you for being our deliverer, our savior, our ruler. Would you rule and reign in our hearts? 